1: Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the Altana story with my friend Evan Smith. How's it going, Evan? It's good, Joe. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you about this this topic. Before we hit record, Evan and I were talking and uh, he's got some visibility tools. and He might call it something slightly different, but it's very different from the visibility we normally talk about on my podcast. And I'm very excited to, to learn more. So Anyway, Evan, please introduce yourself and your company and where you're calling from today.
0: Yeah. So my name is Evan Smith. I'm the CEO. I'm the co-founder of Altana Technologies, and we are building Google Maps for the world's supply chain network. What we're doing is we're connecting the world's public and non-public data in a federated data platform where we meet all this siloed data, where it is across governments, logistics providers, big enterprises, even other software companies. And we synthesize that data into a network view of the world. And then our products provide visibility and decision support and collaboration across those networks so that our customers are able to connect and collaborate across a multi-tier supply chain and build what we call trusted networks.
1: Well, we'll get a little more detail into that because you said, you said a mouthful there, you used use one term there that I'm wondering why you used it. What does federated mean in this context?
0: So imagine a hub and spoke model with many many spokes and what we're doing in in our architecture is we're actually bringing the platform to the customer's data and not the other way around. And the reason we're doing that is because in order to build the shared source of truth for the world supply chain you cannot naively go to the Customs agencies around the world, you can't go to Marisk, you can't go to UPS, you can't go to FedEx and say, give me your shipment data, give me your business to business data, and I'm going to pool it all in one central location. I'm going to build a map of the world, and it's going to be this global data utility and everyone's going to benefit. So in order to deal with the data security and the data sovereignty and the intellectual property concerns around all this sensitive data, you have to somehow meet the data where it is and then what we do is we take the thumbprint of that data through machine learning and derived analytics and we build this synthesized view of the world across that federated network so back to the hub and spoke in the hub we're bringing in public data open source data commercial data from partners and that provides the seed of what we call a knowledge graph a knowledge graph is just a fancy way of saying a network weight, a network view of the data. So, who is connected to who is connected to what, and um, one way to think about that is like LinkedIn has a knowledge graph of the world's business relationships. Right. Facebook has a knowledge graph of the world's social network. But we're building at Altana is a knowledge graph of the world's supply chain network. Yeah,
1: and what I like about when we talked offline, you said it's not necessarily about. Vehicles. So a lot of times when we talk about visibility, we're saying, well, we have some code within the ELD and we can track that truck or we can track that pallet or that container ship. You're tracking goods, which is awesome because when you think about it, I don't care where the truck is. I care where my stuff is. Ideally, my stuff is in that truck. <laughs> but the only reason I care to track your truck is because my stuff's in it. (laughs) I don't care where that truck goes after my stuff gets dropped off. So I love what you're doing. And I can tell you from my experience in automotive that you have so many suppliers and that's the nature of advanced or mature industries. We have tons of suppliers and they all have information and they all have their role and it's very disconnected. And even the best systems that we currently use don't manage to give us that global view that, that, that or any real data that helps us manage it better
0: yeah that's um that was the key insight in informing the company was um, most of the software spend and most of the data that exists is about the direct relationship between a big buyer and its suppliers and what we're doing is we're providing network visibility into the suppliers suppliers and the suppliers 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 so you know tier zero to tier one to two to three to four however far it goes back to the soil
1: but by the way if you had given us that data pre ai ml you um, you go all right what am i going to do with all this if i I get hey evan i I sent you a, a spreadsheet with all this data Glean some insights and send it back to me. You'd be like, dude, (laughs) you got a lot of suppliers would be the insight. (laughs) Yep. Anyway, we'll get back to all that. And I want to go through some use cases because I think that'd be the best way to understand this. And I'll probably, if you don't mind, ask you some super basic questions about machine learning and artificial uh, intelligence, how that plays in. But first, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some career highlights before you started the Mighty Altana and then we'll also ask why you started
0: the company with your partners. Sure. So going all the way back, I grew up in a fishing town in Alaska called Homer.
1: Oh, wasn't there a TV show about that?
0: Yeah, there's a few. I know a lot of those people. on um, Yeah, you, you know everyone
1: up. in Alaska. Was there 1,700 people in Alaska now?
0: <laughs> yeah, there's more than that, but I'd be surprised. You do know a lot of the folks. So-
1: why were you there? I'm just curious. Is that your parents move up there? I'm, well, that Clearly, they moved up there, but why were they up there?
0: Yeah, well they met there. So my, my dad grew up in New Orleans, my mom grew up in San Diego.
1: So my God, those are warm weather places. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> they were they were trying to get as far away as they could. So if you drive up through Canada and then into Alaska, and then you kind of follow the highway all the way to the very, very end of the road through Anchorage on down to the bottom of the Kenai Peninsula. You come over this hill and it it suddenly reveals this big fourteen mile long bay. And there's mountains and glaciers across the bay, and there's a peninsula of land that goes out about halfway to those mountains, and that's where Homer sits. It's, it's beautiful. Yeah, it's it's spectacular. It's a beautiful spot at the very end of the road. Very nice. So
1: you grew up in Homer. So to go go from there.
0: Uh, so from Homer, I I went to a school at Yale, where I met my co-founder Peter across the hall from me, and um, we became fast friends, and then eventually roommates. That must have been crazy culture shock to go from Homer to Yale. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know. This is a true story. So I didn't know how to have conversations with people I didn't already know. Well, yeah, that
1: would be the nature of, you know, there's probably one person per 100 miles in Alaska.
0: It's a little bit more than that where I grew up. But, you know, you just, <laughs> you just know everybody in town. Like every, everybody. Yeah, uh, probably since birth. Interact with Is basically somebody you, uh, you already know. Nice. So, so when you, it,
1: you met your partner and what did you study there?
0: I studied economics. I was actually focused specifically on development economics. So how do you bring people out of poverty and in poorer parts of the world? And I also was studying Hindi at school.
1: Well, who, do- well, who doesn't?
0: There's a, there's a funny story behind it. I um, So Yale requires that you have advanced proficiency in a foreign language in order to graduate. And I studied French in high school because that was the foreign language that was available. So I figured I would take... You know, a semester of 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 advanced French, and then test out, and then be done with it. And in order to do that, you have to take a French placement exam. And um, I just got too drunk the night before.
1: (laughs) I have a—that's how I ended up in remedial English my first year of school, remedial English in of college because I skipped. We went to a party, and I skipped. um, English is my best topic, and so I had remedial English in addition to regular English. It was an easy eh? A.
0: It it was one of those butterfly, you know, wing flaps that changes your life. So, you know, I, I was going to have to start in beginner French or take a new language. And so I ended up uh, looking through the curriculum and, and really the only thing that fit my schedule was Hindi. And I had never even had Indian food by that time my wife was 18 years old and I grew up in Alaska. So so let's go for it.
1: Well, I'll tell you, I, I, said it, I said it earlier today when we were prepping. I interviewed so many Indian people, founders and technologists. So... Having, I always say, I've learned a few languages and forgotten most of those languages. I studied French, studied Japanese, but if you don't use it, you lose it. But I think what you never lose is the insight into the culture because the language usually informs you about their culture. So that 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 is certainly never going to go to waste in your business.
0: Yeah, I um, I was convinced I was going to start a company in India out of school. That was my plan. So I my my first love professionally was renewable energy. And my idea was that there was an opportunity to lift people out of poverty in India, especially in the rural parts of India, and to deploy renewable energy and and clean up the environment. So all at the same time, and long story short, I didn't do that. I didn't win the business plan competition that I applied to, to fund that. And, um, I ended up instead getting hired into a venture capital backed renewable fuel startup in Seattle. Nice. And this is the at the time it was the you know biggest and baddest most heavily funded renewable energy company before the crash, and they hired me to be in charge of next generation technology as a 21 year old. So it was...
1: get a lot of responsibility at VCs, don't you?
0: Yeah. So I was I was working on renewable jet fuel with Boeing and with Honeywell. Honeywell makes most of the petroleum industry's refining catalysts. So we were taking plant feedstock and then converting that into jet fuel at the lab scale. Now it's actually flying in your plane. So there's there's small amounts of renewable jet fuel and nice. commercially more on the world. So so that actually worked. So that was that was uh, the first sort of eight years of my career. I ended up actually starting a company, and we were uh, ten of us managing a renewable fuel strategy for the Middle Eastern state Qatar. I I was just asking a guy that I bumped into: is it Qatar or is it cutter? <laughs> it's actually somewhere in between, if you <laughs> I know. and I, I would I would always up, be wrong, wouldn't I? So I'm not going to embarrass myself in an attempt <laughs> to, to say it. But um, yeah, so so we we ended up four years building out like an R and D strategy, a venture capital a strategy, some partnerships, and then you know in 2012. Chinese called the bluff of of uh, the European Union and said, if you include aviation in your cap and trade, you know, greenhouse gas emissions trading scheme, we will only buy Airbus. Or sorry, we only buy Boeing from here on out. And the EU balked and did not include aviation in their emissions trading scheme, and that ended up kind of killing the whole motivation for renewable jet fuel at the time. So then for another 5 years after that i was i was running a company in supply chain this was my first kind of foray into supply chain this was a, a business that was automating the textile and apparel supply chain a unique color management technology and that's where i kind of got the bug so you realize you can't see your whole supply chain <laughs> well it's 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 it, it's that but it's such an incredible opportunity for impact right so it's it's literally the fabric of the world, and if you can make things better in the supply chain, you can have this profound impact across climate, across you know labor rights, across national security and compliance, now inflation and business resiliency. so it's it, it's this opportunity to pull a lot of levers at a really big scale so from from there, I went to a data company called Pangeva, which I helped to build up and and then sell to s and p and from panjiva to altana so panjiva that's probably the relevant jumping off point we um we were think about it like a bloomberg data service for trade data yep and we had i think at the time 3300 customers paying not a lot of money for a data product and some of those customers were you know banks hedge funds governments the biggest logistics companies in the world and if you look across each of the use cases, I think we had 24 different customer segments and dozens of use cases. The common theme was they were buying our data in order to unify it with their own data about companies and products and trade routes and things like that. And then they were looking to typically stitch in third party data to build this sort of bigger picture of some piece of the supply chain network. And we said there's a much more interesting opportunity here than selling data, which is to build a data platform that creates a common operating picture that everybody else can plug into.
1: Right. So the idea is not every organization needs to do what you just said. They can buy it from one company. So if everybody shares their data, that's anonymous, right? So I know I always have to say that probably everyone should know that by now.
0: Well, it's us actually poke on that because we're not we're, we're not actually anonymizing the data. Really, explain what we're doing is we're generating derived data from the customers' data as we connect it into our knowledge graph view of the supply chain network. So, what do you mean derived data? Yeah, that's the question. So, you have let's let's imagine that that you have a list of shipment records, or maybe it's it's tier one vendor data, or it's bill of materials data, and There's text strings that represent counterparties so suppliers, buyers, etc. Those text strings can be in English, they can be in Chinese, they can be in Spanish, they can be very misspelled, the addresses can be wrong, you might have the goods description jammed into the name. So we take all that messy text data and we transform it in the process of comparing billions of records to each other. And we say, we think that these are all co-references to this one thing, Joe Lynch LLC, that exists in the world. And we're going to assign that an Altana ID as a canonical notion of Joe Lynch. So you mentioned all this data and you said
1: it text data. So I, I just think about this as this comes up on my podcast every once in a while. So if I get, let's just say, a container ship, mm-hmm. uh, somebody says, all right, Joe, I put that all in a Word document and I sent you that word document it's attached the data is all in a word document or could even be a PDF right and I always call that static data that's that that is data that until you do something else with it it is always going to be static you're never gonna get insights from it it's not helping make decisions so do you take some of that data and put it into a field
0: we do we do a lot of the extraction and structuring of you know raw data into standardized data,
1: which is at that point it's dynamic and it can be analyzed. Yeah, it
0: can be on. it can be connected with other things and so the the key thing that we're doing is we're generating a derived network view from billions of underlying raw text records and geospatial coordinates which allow us to build these notions of Think about them as um, nodes with edges or relationships between nodes in a graph. So in our case, the kind of key nodes or entities that we're building these profiles of are companies, places, products, ports, vessels, right? The kind of key things we would imagine the supply chain network. And then the relationships or edges between those nodes are shipment edges so or, or supplier relationships. You know, these goods go from here to here, and then ownership edges. So this company owns this company at this percentage, and then operating edges. So this company operates a supply chain facility at this location on Earth.
1: I'm afraid you're afraid you're going to lose me on some of this. So I'll, maybe we we'll go through a use case. And and I, again, I, I'm not. It's not you. It's me. I, I I joke about this, but it's no joke. I try and be the dumbest person listening to my podcast.
0: I thought that'd be harder than it really is.
1: <laughs> but who are who are your customer segments? Like, what, who do you work with?
0: Today, we're working with government agencies, global businesses, and big logistics providers.
1: Okay, so since since most of the people listening are either shippers or logistics people, usually, yeah, shippers would be the you know the big shippers. So why don't we go through a use case? So let's just say um, I'm a big automotive tier one. I understand that business. So I'm a big automotive tier one, and I have all sorts of problems. And you come to me and say, Joe, I can help you
0: blank. (laughs) (laughs) I can help you understand how your business sits and is situated within a multi-tier supply chain network. So in other words, I'm going to reveal to you. Your tier one suppliers, your tier two suppliers, your tier three suppliers, from raw material through intermediate through the finished products that arrive to you. Well, I,
1: I, I could I could go to my whiteboard and draw that out for you. Here's who I work with. I might have a hundred. I'm the tier one. I'm, I serve an OEM. I can write all that out, and I got all these tier two suppliers. They send me parts, and I usually assemble them, and I send it to the OEMs.
0: Yeah, and so we're we're helping clear away the fog on tier two, tier three, tier right. four. So the,
1: yeah. And that is, that is where it gets real opaque right after I hired somebody to help me out making this part and they hired companies to help them make it. And I don't have visibility sometimes in the tier twos. I think I'm, I'm, I think
0: I'll give you a, a so what, so, so step one is just the visibility. Show me where I sit in the network. Show me the network evolving in real time. And step two is decision support. So we use artificial intelligence to find things that matter in the network or to recommend suppliers or to identify risk. So specifically in auto, this is a real example. We're we're working with one of the biggest uh, auto OEMs on, on the planet. Nice. They are, or I guess were, entirely dependent on a single engine fastener manufacturer in Western Ukraine. Of course. So in other words, a tier three relationship was a single point of failure across all of their product lines. So if they go down and that's a real threat in today's world, that, that ends up shutting down the entire supply chain for them. Yep. And, and anybody who's
1: worked with automotive will hear if you're late with a the part, they talk about it being a million dollars an hour because they, they value their plant being up all the time. So if you shut a line down, and that would be an engine plant, which when you, once you shut an engine plant down, you start shutting down all the vehicle lines that use that engine. So
0: quickly, one third of your business may be gone. Yep. And then there's you know car seats, which arrive just in time because they're too big to store an in inventory. And so if those car seats are interrupted along the way, or if there's a sort of upholstery interruption upstream of that, so that's, that's um, this is the sort of business continuity use case when is use us for, for supply chain resilience or business continuity. How do I make sure that the, the actual multi-tier value chain of goods is producing reliably and without interruption?
1: Yep. I think we've talked about this concept a few times in my podcast, and I think you probably know it real well is the idea of the digital twin. So everything in the physical world has a twin in the, in the digital world. And we're not quite there yet. In most cases, we have TMS, we have an ERP, we have all these different systems, but it's not an end-to-end solution like you're discussing here. So we can never really do the, the, the scenario planning we want. By the way, I heard somebody said this on my podcast. I don't know if it's true. Somebody said Apple has a digital twin. They can do that. And obviously, a technology company but i would think it's pretty important given a, what percentage of their supply chain is dependent on china yep. but all of us i think 50% of the supply chain functions right now are in china and that won't be the case in 10 years we're we're going to have some big changes and it would be nice to be able to say i'm going to do some scenario planning i didn't know russia was going to invade the ukraine but if i was doing some digital scenario planning and that I think you, your tool probably enables me to do that right I I can say ooh here's my risks here's my here's my potential risk this these 10 parts are my risk what can we do to minimize that risk prior to you know a
0: problem happening right that's a really important frame for the whole reason we exist so our our point of view is that the globalization of the last Pick your time frame: three decades, five decades, post World War II. That globalization has come to an end, where it was just a world oriented around outsourcing, and you know an interconnected economy. And there's major climate dislocations happening. There's obviously the return of great power competition between the U.S. and China, and a lot of the fracturing of economic ties associated with that. You also have you know, as we speak, um, major breakdowns in the supply chain, and then resulting inflation, which the world is going to be dealing with for a long time. So, I think you know these are big, sort of generational. I, I expect that through the entirety of my professional lifetime, we're going to be working through these problems. Yeah, as I, I'm I'm supposed to
1: speak, and a friend of mine's a professor, so I'm speaking at, at her class next week or a couple of weeks from now. And what's interesting is my when I went to college. I went to college at night. Everywhere I went, it was all globalization, globalization, globalization. Which, by the way, if you're a baby boomer, and I'm one of the younger baby boomers, we grew up. And if you study, if you paid attention at all in social studies, you would look. The GDP of the United States was greater than the next five, six countries underneath, it. and those five or six countries would be like Germany, France, England. Not none of the ones that we th- think about today. So the idea that you were telling us that we should start worrying about globalization, there was only one market that really mattered. It was here. Why would we care? And that, that's that's coming, overstated that perhaps. But it was really hard to do business elsewhere. This is pre-internet, of course. And so the idea that we could even make, we couldn't even deal with the next state without long distance charges. So it was not easy to work overseas. And And what's funny about that is as I- You worked in China, right? Yeah, I went back and forth to China quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a perfect example. And then now I I guess my point is, as I come closer to the end of my career, I'm not going anywhere. We're unraveling that globalization. And I just had some venture capitalists on who said we're not done with globalization completely, but we have a a regionalization is now what we're looking at for opportunities.
0: Yeah, I think um, so. So the way that we frame it, the the mission of our company actually is to power globalization 2.0 and we define this next phase of globalization as a globalization that will be built around trusted networks. So we're still going to have supply chains yes. and financial networks which are transnational. So it's, it's I think I think saying, you know, we are regionalizing or we're reshoring or we're friendshoring, I think those are too reductive. What'll probably happen and you know this is what we're building the company to to enable is um much more explicit visibility and collaboration and rule setting across multi-tier business networks. So you can have Chinese suppliers, but like we need to have documentation and visibility that there's no Uyghur forced labor associated with the solar. So products. that so,
1: so that Uyghurs are the people who are kind of an ethnic minority in China that is. Uh being persecuted right now and potentially slave labor there. And by the way, I mentioned before I hit record, yeah, that I worked for a company that was very concerned about that back in the day in China, because there was some instances of it. And it's not just that. You also, more and more, we care about, if I say that we have, we're a sustainable business, and then I find out that I'm working with companies that are Doing things that are going to embarrass me, that don't fit our values, that don't align to our values. Maybe they're using child labor. Maybe they're being a, a heavy polluter. And by the way, I I, I say this all the time. Your great grandparents, my great grandparents, they did not care about the environment because it was infinite. It was like that smoke; it just goes up to space and then to heaven. The world was much bigger. There was much fewer people, and they were poor. Poor people don't usually care about sustainability, but your wealthy pe- wealthy customers here do. So if they find out you're using dirty methods overseas, you're out. And so we need to have that visibility into that kind of thing. And if you don't have a tool for it, how do you get into that?
0: <laughs> yeah, well, you're making the pit for Altana right now. It's interesting. That, so the COP, uh, the big the climate uh, summit is happening. I think it's next week they kick off. And the the real focus is going to be on scope three emissions. What is that? <laughs> Yeah, so so there's this concept in in the climate and like greenhouse gas measurement world around scope 1, scope 2 and scope 3. Scope 3 is everything upstream of you outside your direct control. And so if you're if you're thinking about what you just said like where where are the majority of my sustainability impacts as a business that makes physical things? It's in the supply chain network. I think 80% of the
1: greenhouse gases come from the supply chain. So all of us Go home, and we recycle, and do all these things. But recognize that eighty percent of the green. And by the way, that means if we, as an industry, logistics and supply chain, don't do something, the government's going to step in. And I mean, they already have stepped in, but I guess more forcefully. And I think most of us say, "Hey, go ahead and put some guardrails up. We'll we'll stay between the the rails."
0: <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's happening in Europe first. Uh, I was in Brussels two weeks ago. I'll be in Brussels again next week. They're, they're moving pretty aggressively on two things. One is climate reporting in the multi-tier supply chain. Two is a carbon border adjustment mechanism, where the idea is we're going to have a carbon tariff that creates a more level playing field between unsustainable goods that are cheaper and then more sustainable goods that, that might be more expensive to produce. Right.
1: And I am generally not a huge fan of the government being heavy handed, but externalities, which is, you know, pollution is a big problem in economics. And if you think about it, if I sell you something for a hundred dollars and somebody else says, Hey, I can do it for 90. And I go, yeah, but Evan, we're on the same page. I-, I-, I told you how we don't, we don't, we don't use methods that pollute and they do. And you go, yeah, but they're cheaper, Joe," but. That $10 that he saved went into the sky and potentially into our water. So I am all for the government stepping in and saying, we're going to prevent certain externalities. And, you know, it's also interesting. And again, this gets so political and I'm not a political person. I just want all our elected idiots to work closely together. (laughs) But right now, Europe has a problem with energy this winter. And part of that problem is because... They said we're going to use renewable energy that wasn't quite there yet. So it's not just not just putting up the guardrails and say, "Hey, from now on, Joe, you're going to live in solar." I'm in Michigan. We don't have winter for th- we have winter. We don't have sunshine for three months in the winter. There's no- so it's not going to work here. Now it can work in Mexico. It can work down in Texas, but not here.
0: Yeah, I. I so as as an Alaskan. I grew up pretty skeptical of government myself. We do need it for certain things, for sure. <laughs> yeah. So you know, we, Altana uh, works with the U.S. government. We work with allied governments, and um, I'll I'll say, you know, getting to know people in these agencies, you know, with these mandates, and you know, some of the work we're doing now, and some of the work we're we're starting to align on going forward, I think is actually really. Compelling and innovative. So, one of the things we're we're really pushing in our government work is using the Altana Atlas, our our, you know our federated Google Maps for the supply chain, using that as a way for the public sector and private sector to more explicitly cooperate on solutions. That's one of the big problems: is you have like a bureaucrat or a technocrat saying "thou shalt" or "thou shalt not," and it's disconnected from reality, and have the conversation back and forth we can actually affect that. So they have a common operating picture, but it's still federated data and there's no explicit data sharing.
1: I think I just had Lauren Began on my podcast and she talked about the new rulemaking from uh, ASRA 2022, which relates to the ports. And one of the things she was saying, she's an attorney and she's worked closely with the FMC, Federal Maritime Commission, also the ports. And she said, they really, really want your input on this. And from my experience on the Food Safety Modernization Act and on the ELD mandates, the other things that have hit our space, the government doesn't want to come in and be prescriptive and say you must do it this way. They do want industry input. So I think we can do this smarter. And I mentioned, you know, wanting our elected officials to work closer together. I think it's also important that we, in industry, impact. You know, if you, it's easy for me like to, to criticize the government. Help them get you know, especially these larger companies. We need them to step in and and say, "Hey, here is how we're going to make it a a a regulation that we can all live with that makes sense." And I think the days of the company coming in and saying, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna lobby so we can pollute," there is too much information in the world now. (laughs) Altana is not going to let people do that.
0: (laughs) But it's it's just pollution, though, right? So it's it's um you know we're we're in a more dangerous world today than we've been in a long time. And so it's, and that's going to get worse. So this is, you know, national security. This is intellectual property protection. This is trade compliance. So you're
1: not just, you're not just the environment. So getting back to that use case. So I'm that, that, that tier, I'm a tier one to Ford and General Motors and Chrysler and Nissan. As I'm doing business, I have Altana and the way you can help me is you give me visibility into my supply chain and where my stuff is at. So it, m- it might be my raw m- raw materials or in process goods and not necessarily visibility as where's the truck at, just
0: where's the stuff at, right? Yeah. So the, the term is value chain visibility. So we're showing the connections upstream of you and downstream across multiple tiers where you see the transformation of a good or of, of input goods to finished goods. So it would be like three
1: three benefits, how I'm going to save some money or make more money. Three of those that I would have as that tier
0: one automotive supplier. As the tier one, um, so one of the the big things is around business continuity. So, you know, if you stick in the auto one, so, so we actually saw in our platform, semiconductors moving toward consumer electronics in the downstream network and away from automotive OEMs which of course a couple of years ago was the reason the entire auto supply chain backed up. Can you up.
1: I mean I know there's 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 different levels of those chips. Could you tell
0: that? Yeah. Yeah, I mean we're we're looking at the goods, right? So the, there's the real basic
1: chips that I might use in a food processor and then there's the real advanced chips that I use in my car. You can see all those different chips?
0: Yeah, it's not a it's not a crystal ball. You're not seeing 100% of That's the world. Fantastic. We, we cover about Forty-five, fifty percent of supply chain linkages. Well, yeah, data is
1: data, though. Like, if you say, "Hey, look, it's it was directionally correct enough to make a better decision than I make today."
0: It was very clear that the uh, the flows in the semiconductor supply chain were going away from auto and toward consumer electronics.
1: Yeah. By the way, I use the term directionally correct a lot, and because I'm from automotive, and that's a commonly used term there, because sometimes you just don't have enough data to make the decision. And you're like, well, we do we agree this is directionally correct? And that's, again, if it'd be a bit much better if I could say, based on the Altana input, this is the right decision, much, right. much better, because these are decisions that impact so much. So business continuities,
0: one. continuity is one. Another one we are doing a lot of work on right now is trade compliance. So the regulatory landscape has gotten way more complex. Over the last few years, I think the stat was 10,000 new trade regulations in the last 10 years, which reversed a multi-decade trend of liberalization. So net new trade barriers. So we're doing work with big shippers, big enterprises on complying with this sort of uh, whack-a-mole and highly volatile trade compliance landscape. One of the big ones is the new import ban on anything from Xinjiang, China.
1: And what's going on there?
0: That's that's what we were talking about earlier with the Uyghur forced labor. So the U.S. passed a unanimous bill back in December, and it came into effect in June, which is very novel legally. So it says, everything from this region on Earth is assumed guilty until proven innocent. And we're transferring the burden of cost and compliance to the private sector. So, in other words, we're not, we, U.S. Customs and Border Protection, um, are treating the problem as your thing and not ours. It's, it's not it's not picking needles in the haystack. It's like the, the private sector has to go qualify the haystack. So, that, that introduced a big burden on, on the private sector.
1: I can tell you this from my experience I was with, just before COVID, I was with a company um, advising them on, on selecting a 3PL. Great experience, great people. But... There was a lot of conversation. They're a the complex manufacturer with tons of stuff coming in and on it, global. And they were getting all sorts of you know requests from somebody in Pakistan to buy from their company in Colombia. and you're like, "Hey, what, what is this?" And they were, you mentioned the whack-a-mole approach. They were, they, they were just starting to implement some better solutions than that because the problem is they might be buying something to use in a bomb somewhere else right and you go oh my goodness we don't want to be participating in that but when you have far-flung operations and subsidiaries and then you have all these you know false fake companies around the world saying i would like to buy this and I, i and right now i'm sure there's there's sanctions against russia i can't sell them certain things how do we prevent that and then i'm assuming. If you get caught doing it, you're in big trouble. But also, it's probably not as simple as "Hey, this guy named Vlad Putin wants to buy something from you." And it's it's most likely from a, a, an allied comp- country.
0: That's right, and it's um, again, it's back to the multi-tier network problem, right? So all of our visibility, all of our compliance, all of our relationship management is at that direct one-to-one buyer-supplier relationship. But these are all big network problems.
1: So so you can help them first. Is business continuity. Make sure that that bolt that's in the Ukraine, I know about that risk because I've done some scenario planning ahead of time. Secondly, is trade compliance, which is increasingly important if you're a big company. And I guess it's probably really important if you're a, a global or even national, international uh, logistics and supply chain company. So, what's the third big thing you guys would help
0: them do? The big poll right now is around sustainability reporting, which you alluded to earlier, um, this, especially for publicly traded companies. There's mandatory climate disclosures coming down the pike. And then the way that um, these ESG funds and just big capital allocators have uh, kind of changed the game for CEO and CFO compensation. It's like your, your stock price now depends on being able to report on your sustainability performance. And again, you know, the, the real sustainability impact is in the supply chain. It's in the scope three emissions. It's in the multi-tier network itself.
1: Yeah, that's super important. We've talked about that stuff a lot on the podcast. But so a lot of what you described is way over my head. Uh, not the three benefits, but the technology itself. So let's just say I'm back to my company here. I'm a tier one, and you come and you say I can give you these three things. Do I have to? Do I have to go back to school? Do I have to go to Yale and learn how to uh, <laughs> how to code and how to? Or do, are you making this easy for me
0: as the user? So it's, it's actually both. We, we have a product. I'll say it differently. You can interact with our product or our platform. So some of our customers are actually very technical and they have big teams devoted to things like supply chain risk management or customs automation, or, you know, a digital twin initiative, like you mentioned earlier. And so for those uh, customers that are very technical and want to interact with the data platform and the underlying data, we have a platform as a service offering that their team can build on top of. For those customers that are not technical, but their users-
1: Which is is nice because I'm basically, I mean, they use the old saying, I'm standing on the shoulder of giants. You've done the map of
0: the world and now I just have to add my little layer of topsoil. (laughs) Right, that's exactly right. And um, I think the Google Maps metaphor extends here because you and I can go log on to Google Maps today and then poke around and see what's happening in the world by the way, my daughter told me that that they bought Waze. I use Waze a lot, and my
1: daughter told me Google Maps bought Waze. That happened. A, yeah, they
0: did. That was that was wild. <laughs> See,
1: this is why you listen to this podcast, guys. <laughs> so the first, you will give me access to that data. What's the second way that I could interact with your company?
0: So typically, um, the user personas inside of the enterprise that we work with are in category management, supply chain risk management compliance, trade compliance, and procurement. Those are the typical user personas who kind of coalesce around this map of the world. Yeah, and for big organizations, the Procter &
1: Gamble, the Ford, General Motors, those that all have that kind of, those kind of people. So what about like a logistics company? How might they use your? What would be the three benefits that they get from your
0: your tool? So we're working with a number of the big logistics companies today really focused on the border. So we have an artificial intelligence model in our platform, which does automated customs classification. And it also on a per shipment basis, identifies what's safe and trustworthy and then what's not. And one of our customers, how do you do 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 that? (laughs) Well, you learn from billions of data points, including data points that show seized and audited goods. Oh, so you can say that, that that came from the same location that everything gets
1: seized at the border, so.
0: Yeah, or these, these ha- you know, one of the uh, things the model does pretty reliably is, is identify fake IDs that are labeled as chopsticks. <laughs> so, you know, you're learning from these, these vast quantities of data with artificial intelligence, and the use case there, think about that as, like, clear for cargo. You know, when you go through the airport and there's the clear biometric or TSA pre-check, that's what we're building for shipments at the border and so we're working with logistics companies on that we also have a couple of customs agency deployments
1: excellent excellent i love i love that i think um guys i, I say this sometimes on my podcast and i'm going to say it more often is i think we have this huge business of inter- being intermediaries and i think that'll continue but i think there'll be less and less need for freight brokers and people who are just managing relationships like that now, because I think we're going to have more and more tech for that. But I think where we can add more value is being data scientists and being that uh, that consultant who understands the supply chain from order to cash, not just, I'll get you a truck. And I can tell you this, I, I, I as at my age, I've seen it. A lot of jobs that I, one of my buddies was, worked in the Chicago Board of Options, made a really good living. And at some point, a computer started doing his job. I've worked as a, a design engineer. So much of design engineering is done with the CAD systems now. It just, I, I, it, it's, it's happening. And that was, that was pre-internet, these things. So people like Evan are quickly moving, moving the mark for us. And so you're going to have to upgrade your skill set and move to a different, different role in the supply chain. Anyway. Evan, thank you for explaining these use cases. So I wanted to be brief about this because I know we got to, I'm I'm suspecting I'm going to lose you here before too long, but all this data that you have, that you've collected, we couldn't have done anything with before we had artificial intelligence and machine learning. And, And by the way, I've said this before on the podcast, you used to have tons of information in file cabinets, literally file cabinets by your desk. And even if you put it online, we didn't have the computing power to do anything with it. And then we re- we could have probably created the algorithms. But until we got all three of those things together, there was no such thing as using artificial intelligence online. But now it's just seemingly every other person I talk to is using those tools.
0: Yeah, we, we use artificial intelligence in two buckets. The first bucket is around cleaning and connecting and synthesizing the data to build this Sort of living, dynamic model of the supply chain network itself, and then the second application is is generating insight and decision support around that data. So that's all the dis- scenario planning and yeah, identifying yeah. automating a customs classification, recommending a supplier. So all those are applications of artificial intelligence. Once you have the data connected in this way, and and organized, then you can do some really powerful things. I think if anybody needs proof that there can be
1: something bad can happen and it's going to screw up our supply chains, we just experienced it. And, you get that, and we had COVID. And it's interesting, if you see Bill Gates 10 years ago doing a, I I think it was a TED Talk talking about why we need to plan for this pandemic. We didn't plan for it. I don't think that was because he was Gonna sell shots to us either, uh, but my daughter works for one of the vaccine companies, and she buys PPE. She's in procurement, and she said, found out that um, a lot of the PPE was made in Wuhan. Well, that would have been nice to know prior to that, prior to that problem, right? And uh, just so many people realized only after the fact, I shouldn't have been doing business in this region or in this country. I shouldn't have been so dependent on something. And by the way, I feel like the United States, I'd like to think there's some sort of strategic reserve where they're saying, can we make some of the stuff here? It makes, I I, I was always under the assumption that we had masks somewhere. We don't. (laughs) So anyway, Evan, I want to talk a little bit before we, I want to wrap this bad boy up. But I want to talk about what. What do you think is next? In answer, in any order, what's next for you in Altana? Oh, by the way, we didn't talk too much about your company itself. You guys, are, you guys are got a lot of customers
0: already, right? Yeah, we're um, we're making really good progress. So this, we're coming up on our fourth anniversary this December. We just raised a one hundred million dollars Series B.
1: Whoa! So that is that's no joke.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, uh, tougher in this market than last year, but um, no, it, we've we've got a really great- So, so where are you guys based at? at? Not that it
1: matters with your kind of company, but where are you located?
0: We're headquartered in New York City. Very nice. And then we've got a pretty big DC office and then a pretty big London office as well.
1: Wow. So you're global. You have customers all over the world?
0: We do. We do. We have uh, government customers abroad and we have logistics and shipper customers abroad as well. So government agencies,
1: obviously, they're going to want their hands on this logistics and anybody who serves the supply chain they're going to want their hands on this and then those big big companies that are doing global business or even just cross-border shipment it it seems to me we're going to need this again there's the the expect i think you said it earlier the onus is going to be on you to make sure you did it right so later on when you say hey i didn't know i was working with somebody who did the wrong thing on my behalf i don't think you can get away with that for too much longer especially especially in the public's mind Right. By the way, and I'm not anti-Apple, but I remember when Apple was, they were using Foxconn and people were jumping out of windows because they, out of dormitories that they lived in. And I remember Steve Jobs is still alive then. And he said something about, well, everyone wants cheap phones. And I was thinking that was such a great opportunity. And usually Steve Jobs would not have missed that. I could have just seen him say, you know what would be good for our brand Raise the price 10 bucks on our phone and say that 10 bucks goes to making a better life for those people. I don't think we have to look at this as a loss. I think there we can say people would but I think more people would buy an Apple product if they said, you know why I buy it? Because they do the right thing by their employees. And by the way, if you did if that same problem happened right now, 10 years later, 15 years later. There's no way Apple would have responded that way. They would have been completely different. Totally agree. And again, I'm not not being critical of Steve Jobs or Apple. It was just a different time. And that, again, 10, 15 years ago, very different time.
0: Yeah, you're explaining our worldview very well. So we think that this next phase of globalization is going to be defined by trusted networks, where trust is going to be a function of sustainability. It's going to be a function of national security. It's going to be a function of information sharing and privacy it's going to be a function of resilience so the you know it's it, this sort of era of like indiscriminate oh yeah outsourcing driven global supply chains that's over right
1: yeah i think so too and again i I've, I've, I've experienced that i can tell you this i've been around the world and seen some very nasty manufacturing facilities that I thought, and even when you mention this is dangerous, I don't like this. They say, we don't, it's, it's fine here. I remember being in a country one time where they, I said, where's the seatbelts in the back seat? They go, oh, that's not a requirement here. <laughs> and I said, well, it says, <laughs> this is American company on the side of the car. There's going to be seatbelts. They're like, well, who's going to pay that extra, whatever, $80 per car for that? I was like, I don't know, but you're going to have seatbelts. You're not, we're not going to have people on the other side of the world killed because your country doesn't have that. It's, it became, and by the way, it's the worst thing that can happen to a business is that you start being looked at as like, are you the one who killed those, those, those people because of your, and it's going to be look, it's greed, right? <laughs> and no one wants to be in that position. Anyway, I'm going to ask you a few last things here. So what's next for you? What's next for Altana? I know we just talked about Series B, and then what's next for this industry? When I will talk about this industry, is being all the things you talked about, which is the, uh, the the trade compliance, the the visibility across networks, that trusted network, and then the last one was uh, what am I missing? Compliance, trade compliance.
0: I can keep going. We're, we're about to kick something off in insurance.
1: Wait, well, yeah. So, so, anyway, what's next for you guys?
0: Well, on the personal front, I'm becoming a father this January. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. So that's, that's going to be a big journey. Yes, it will. So in terms of the company, we're, um, we're growing really, really quickly right now. Probably going to land somewhere between 10 and 15 times revenue growth this year. And you know, next year and, and the, the next couple of years as we get through Series B and grow, grow into our next round of funding, It's really about doing what we're doing well today, which is creating this federated data platform and a common operating picture for these different parties to see the supply chain network and then take action on it. The next phase of this for us is um, we want to facilitate direct collaboration through the network. So a a big enterprise should be able to engage with the tier one and the tier two and the tier three from a common operating picture. And that's a controversial statement. There's a lot of people who think that, you know, you shouldn't know my suppliers. It's, that's the secret. That's the, my secret sauce. That's my business advantage. Um, so we're trying to d- dissolve that distinction between tier one and tier two and tier three. Yeah,
1: I think I hear every once in a while someone says end-to-end visibility. And I think that's cool, but I don't want to watch a a slow motion train crash, right? I want to be
0: able to collaborate in addition to that visibility. Yep. So that's the big push for us next year is uh, collaboration across. The board. So what's next for what's next for the, the industry uh, the industry that you serve in regards to what you do? I think it's um, it's it's going to be a, a blending and a and a dissolving of silos across things that you know are, are organizationally and you know technically um, very separated things today. So you have procurement. You have supplier discovery, you have trade compliance, you have ESG teams, you have security teams all doing their own thing in silos. Yeah. And the, and, and the, logist, and
1: the logistics guys all in between moving on all of it.
0: Right. So I, I think you know, our, our the, the industry is going to go there and I think we're going to play a meaningful role in helping it. But the, the, the information silos and the, um, the work silos across those dimensions, they're going to dissolve. We need to get everybody operating on one shared source of truth. Excellent. That. I love it. So, before you go, who's your sweet
1: spot? Who do you guys serve best
0: today? We're we're up uh, in in the top of the food chain, so we actually need more time to come down market as our product matures and becomes more self serve. So, we today, it's you know Fortune five hundred enterprises with the global supply chain. It's the big logistics companies and it's government agencies. About a A year or two from now, we're going to come much more down market and then try to get everybody in the world connected up.
1: Yeah, that that makes sense because there's so many logistics companies and there's all the, again, here in Detroit, I can tell you this. There's tier two companies that they don't, they sell to tier ones and the tier ones sell to the big three. Those tier two companies are billion dollar organizations. I mean, they're big and they, and I mean, they'd be big anywhere else. And it's a funny thing how we've gotten to that supply chain. has gotten it's mature and again, this is a big problem for it, is not having the visibility into all of the tentacles of that huge supply chain. So, Evan, what what um, what conferences do you guys attend?
0: Uh, we were recently in the World Customs Organization Technology Conference. Um, we're putting on our own next week, the Globalization 2.0 Summit in New York. Oh, nice. Is that the first time? Yeah, it's our inaugural Globalization 2.0 Summit. So we've got some
1: I will uh put a uh, now it's a little late for people who are outside the region to go there but there's a lot of people in that area so if you give me a link I'll put that in the show notes. What is the uh name of the conference?
0: It's our Globalization 2.0 Summit.
1: And that's kind of what your your whole message here is we had globalization 1.0 and it was okay but this the next one is going to the bar is much higher and we're all going to have to step up.
0: Yeah, we've got a phenomenal set of speakers and panelists, government leaders. We've got business leaders. We've got big investors there. It's it's going to be a, a pretty special event.
1: All right. Well, we'll put a link in the show notes. So that's that's fantastic. Well, what I'll do, Evan, I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile, I'll put a link to your website, and any other links you in, in your conference and any other links you and your marketing team give me. I really appreciate you taking the time and congratulations on your success. Yeah. It's been fun for me. I love what you guys are doing.
0: Yeah. This, this was a cool conversation. I really appreciate it.
1: Yep. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast, your support. It's very much appreciated. Until next time,
0: onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.